This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is July 23rd, 2020, and this is episode 199. I'm Scott Delonabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to do a little bit of catch-up. We're going to catch up on the latest COVID-19 news, and we're going to catch up on the Wii scandal yet again, because it continues to dominate the summer. First, thank you to the 102 people who are contributing every month. Shoutouts this week go to Jeff Reneal Maniv. Julian, Peter, and Ian, who all started supporting the show in January and February of 2018 and have been with us since. Thank you all. You can join them and the growing list of patrons who support us at patreon.com slash politicoast. Or if you just want to send us a one-time donation, you can do an Interact e-transfer to legginbootmedia at gmail.com. And since this is the 199th episode, next week is our 200th episode. On July 30th at 7 p.m., maybe a couple minutes after that, we'll go live on our Facebook page. We're finalizing our guests that we'll have. We'll probably do a bit of a broader overview of politics in a pandemic, how things have changed, both from a philosophical, political science point of view, and from a, you know, real politic point of view. How, how are all of the actual politicians doing? So... Go to the show notes here, go to our Facebook page and find the event and RSVP. And if you want to get involved in our very active patron Slack, go to legandbootmedia.ca and request an invite. Finally, Politicoast, as always, is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. So we're still in a pandemic, Scott, it turns out. Yeah, it never went away, despite the fact that a bunch of British Columbians seem to be acting like it has. And that unfortunately has caused a slight resurgence. Nothing too bad yet, but nevertheless slightly worrying on where the case trajectories are going. Yeah, for most of May and June, we sat around 10 to 20 cases a day. A couple days we saw single digits. Some of them were a little bit higher, but in general, it seemed like a fairly stable, manageable trend. And then just over the past couple weeks, it's really started to tick into the mid-20s and then into the 30s. And we're like, ooh, this is not at an unmanageable pace right now. There are 304 active cases in the province today. Luckily, we only have 16 people in hospital with COVID and only three are in intensive care. This compares to you know the dozens and more that we were looking at back in April. We never got too bad here in BC thanks to people paying attention, following the guidance, and listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry. But I think maybe people got a little bit complacent, especially in late June as we started talking about reopening as Canada Day came up. And it seems like over Canada Day weekend, a bunch of people went to a bunch of parties in Kelowna, and that started another wave. Not a full wave, but a little bit of growth again. Yeah, most of the growth on this has been coming from the interior health region, in large part due to the Kelowna outbreak. BC is not the only place seeing a little bit of an uptake. A few of the other provinces, Ontario, a little bit earlier, but it's a little bit turned around now, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and most notably Alberta, have all also seen upswings. Alberta, in particular, has been seeing over 100 cases a day for a while, for a week or two. The province's website still says Alberta is in stage two of the relaunch. Albertans can and should confidently support Alberta businesses while continuing to act responsibly and follow all public health measures, which the growth of cases in Calgary is starting to be worrying, especially when I have family out there. And it's like, you need to keep taking this seriously, people. The constant debate I think we're seeing now and in Calgary and Edmonton, both cities have debated, at least Calgary has passed uh, versions of a mandatory mask rule 
or bylaw where in Calgary, any public space, you basically should be wearing a mask, including transit. We've, you know, historically BC has not gone that way in terms of manda- mandating very much. Yeah, it does, it's recommended, but just, I, mean, I was picking up some groceries earlier today and I don't know, maybe half the people in the store were wearing a mask. It's definitely varied in my experience. Some places like some of the grocery stores here around Metro Town and Burnaby are very good. Uh, the Rona I went to the other day for a couple supplies, I think there were one or two people in the entire store wearing masks. So, I mean, the key thing is still keep your distance. Physical distancing is the primary uh, tool we have. Wash your hands, stay home when you can. And if you have to be in a closed space, that's where you mask up. Nevertheless, the modeling that the province released earlier this week suggests that we will continue to see an increasing number of cases through the summer as a possibility. But because we're at such a low number, there's a huge amount of variability in that. The best their modeling says is we need to be around 50 to maybe 60% of our normal contact, any more than that, and things start to explode again, which we don't want because we've already seen our RT number, the average daily number of new infections generated per case. So how many how many people does each person with COVID infect? Uh, it's grown above one, and we'd want it below one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much anything above one puts it in the exponential growth category, which is not great. We want to bring that down for sure. Actually, I haven't checked. Have you seen what the R not estimate was overall? I know the science has advanced quite a bit since the initial stages when the estimates were all over the place. Not for COVID in a, you know, in a normal situation where people aren't taking any measures. I think it's hard to measure because so many places have done at least something, except I guess Florida. Yeah, you probably get decent data out of Florida. Maybe Georgia too. Because they're taking action, just, you know, explicitly action that stops cities from trying to do stuff to control COVID. The, uh, Governor put in place a order banning cities from imposing mask requirements. Just something else. America is in a very bad state between that and the stuff happening in Portland with like federal cops going in and Trump rolling that out. It's yeah, not a good, not a good country to visit these days, even if you could. Yeah, leave it to them to turn something as simple as wearing a mask into a culture war issue, but <sighs> is what it is. Anyway, luckily we're in a bit better situation here, but it only takes a one or two super spreader events for us to start looking like, you know, Quebec or Ontario is what's right about now. Yeah. And it seems like BC is eager to not go down that route. And Dr. Henry has rolled out a couple new orders, which aren't fully up on the internet yet, but they've at least been teased and explained. Uh, one is for restaurants. There's a new slate of rules, which seemed like they probably should have been in place before, but perhaps they were just highly recommended. Uh, so if you go to a restaurant now, everyone should be seated at an assigned table. You can't go hopping between tables. Uh, there will be no more dance floors. We've entered the Footloose era of COVID. Why were there dance floors open already? Like it, it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think of something besides maybe like a choir where it's more likely to spread COVID. I was just looking and there's actually an updated guidance for faith-based organizations on the public health website where they do have some, here's how you might be able to do choir singing. Although we really discourage it, there's no way to really prevent, there's no safe distance for singing. Just make sure no one is sick if you're going to have to do it. So they've definitely loosened some of those guides guidelines. Uh, coming back to the restaurants, there's going to be no liquor self-serve, so you can't go up to the bar and order a drink anymore. There's going to be specific requirements around large events and more rules around any place in a restaurant where people might have to form a line or queue up, just keeping that distance. So reasonable things, nothing too surprising. The other announcement was the uh, one that came today, limiting the number of people who can stay at vacation rentals, including houseboats, to just six. Uh, the details aren't out or very clear on this yet, but it sounds like if you plan to get a cottage or a houseboat or some kind of facility, that no more than six people can stay at that facility. Houseboats is a bit of an interesting one because like, 
isn't all the maritime stuff pretty much under federal jurisdiction? Although I guess the houseboats are mostly happening on lakes rather than in the ocean. So the province rather than like Transport Canada or whoever actually gets to decide those. And yeah, I don't know how the regulations work. I imagine their business license would be provincial and they would launch from a provincial dock. I don't know. I don't know how the boats work. But the point is, don't take more than six people on a boat. Six people seems to be the sort of bubble rule that BC is encouraging. I know in Ontario, they're trying to tell you not to have a bubble bigger than 10. Here, Bonnie Henry is saying the rule for restaurants is no more than six people. That should be your general rule in any situation. The other uh, slight change that has come out from the provincial government is six provincial parks now require you to get a park pass. Luckily, it's a free day use pass. But if you're going to be visiting Mount Robson, the Chief, Cypress, Mount Seymour, Garibaldi, or Golden Ears Park, you'll have to go online and get a free pass. Which seems like- is this just to control uh, crowd sizes or what? Exactly. Yeah, there seem to be a lot of people starting to rush to some of these parks, and this will at least let them put a cap on how many people can show up at any of those. Makes sense. Meanwhile, at the federal government level, there's a new bill to extend some support. The CEWS program, the wage subsidy, has been expanded to cover all companies that have seen at least a 30% drop in revenue. Previously, it was 75%, so a lot more companies are going to be getting wage subsidies. Uh, The bill also included a one-time $600 top-up to people with disabilities, including those who receive the disability tax credit, who are on pensions, either the federal or Quebec one, and those who are on veterans assistance. So that was something that I think was included in previous bills, but there were too many uh, other poison chalices that the opposition didn't want to go with. So this one was just the uncontroversial support business, support people with disabilities, and that passed unanimously. Uh, So just to correct one thing on the uh, wage subsidy, it wasn't 75% drop in revenues you had to claim last time. Uh, it was still a 30% originally, but now they're basically introducing a sliding scale right. situation. Yeah, it covered 75% of wages for companies that had a 30% drop. And now it's on a sliding scale. And businesses now, the ones that are the hardest hit, are now getting a top up that's 25% larger than the previous payments were. So more generous and wider range of businesses that can get it. Yeah, really hard to criticize something that all of the political parties supported. And here in BC, the provincial government rolled out a billion dollars of extra funding to match the federal funds that were announced and we discussed last week for municipalities and transit. So the details are still being determined on exactly where that money is going to go and how that's going to support cities and TransLink and BC Transit. But hopefully we'll hear that soon. Yeah, I believe that's mostly covering operating costs. The bunch of the capital stuff I think is going at, at least on TransLink side. Uh, they just decided who's going to be building the Broadway subway the other week. So that's still moving ahead. But at the same time, the, some of the local governments are looking and seeing what they need to pare back or delay. So yeah, how that shapes up is going to be pretty important at the local level. So yeah, keep washing your hands. Stay home if you can. Let's keep those numbers down. Moving on to our next segment, We Still in Scandal. So the We Scandal is just uh, keeps on giving. It's been several weeks now, and every week we get some new bit of information that makes the government look even worse in this. And a couple days ago, that came courtesy of Bill Marneau, the finance minister, who revealed that he's actually paying We back for about $41,000 related to trips he went on that were paid for we and they just you know forgot to invoice him or he forgot to pay it and yeah i just now decided when this whole scandal was breaking that he maybe better go back and check and see about that and decided to repay this a lot of this is coming out as both the finance committee and ethics committee which thanks to our minority parliament are dominated by the opposition parties are really digging into the federal government. And so Morneau was before, I think it was the Finance Committee, some of the chief bureaucrats involved, like Rachel Wernick, which is a surprisingly similar name to the last set of scandals. Oh, uh, that's, yeah. 
she's actually the sister, I think. De- definitely a fairly close relation to the other Warnick that was in the last big government scandal we were talking about. O- Ottawa's a small world. So coming back to the Morneau story to start with, and then we have a whole bunch of others we can run through. Lots more came out about Morneau's family's ties to We as well. His wife had made about $100,000 in donations to We Charity in recent years. It was somewhat already known, but his two daughters have ties to the charity. One has spoken at We events and the other works for the organization. And so all this comes to a head because Morneau, like Trudeau, didn't recuse himself at the cabinet table when the decision to hand we this contract was being made. So the question is, you know, did he break ethics rules? Uh, He's being partially investigated already in the first ethics investigation. And Charlie Angus with the NDP has called on the ethics investigation Has Charlie Angus of the NDP has called on the ethics commissioner to launch a second investigation into Morneau over some of these new revelations. The conservatives would be fine if the existing, uh, investigation were broadened in its scope. Either way, not good looks for Bill Morneau. I know Morneau's fairly rich, but how did you forget to pay for a vacation that costs more than many people make in a year? They were family vacation, and it was two vacations. So I know it's still a lot of money. I guess he doesn't handle his own checkbook, maybe, when you're that rich. It's not a good look, though. No, it really isn't ministers and MPs aren't supposed to be taking paid for trips in the first place anyway. So it, and then not disclosing them. So yeah, altogether, just a bad look and quite likely broke several rules. Yeah. That was the whole Aga Khan scandal to go back even farther. Yeah. Yeah. Man, these just are so familiar. Oh yeah. And the, the last more no scandal was him forgetting to disclose stuff as well. So the, was that Italian villa? When you have so many, assets and take so many fancy trips you just lose track of them the next story in the docket i think was probably the biggest in terms of its what factor it turned out and this was via global news that the federal government wasn't actually going to give the money to we charity this 912 million dollar contract but actually to a third organization not the me to we social enterprise but me charity the We Charity Foundation, which was only incorporated in January 2018 and received charitable status just in April 2019. It was created, I guess, on the advice of We's lawyers who said, you should create something to just hold all your real estate and it can be a sort of shell charity to protect We Charity from some of the liability that could come along with that. And so when this contract came along, the We lawyers said that would be where the money should go rather than We Charity send it in the We Charity Foundation, and you'll protect yourselves. Makes total sense from We's point of view. For some reason... The but why did the government go for that? Yeah, for some reason, the federal government agreed to cut the check to this charity foundation that has zero track record. Yeah, whose uh, reports to the federal government basically say, yeah, we own a bunch of real estate, and that's more or less it. And even some of the real estate stuff isn't entirely clear because the property records apparently have a bunch of the real estate still in uh, title to the We Charity, not the We Charity Foundation. So the whole thing seems like a mess and kind of got to wonder who was doing the due diligence on this to sign off on that contract going to a, a, a an organization with basically no track record that existed, you know, a year ago. And that's about it. Yeah, fairly prominent nonprofit charity lawyer Mark Bloomberg is quoted in this piece just calling it shocking. You know, it baffles him that something like this would go through. And he's like, yeah, I totally get why we would want this. But it's kind of like he compared it to the government of Ontario giving $100 million to London, Ontario, but actually giving it to London, England. Yeah, that seems like a bit of an overstatement. But so legally, we charity and we charity foundation are entirely distinct. And they have separate boards of directors. So it could be that We Charity Foundation just runs away with the money and there's nothing We Charity or the government could do at that point other than try and sue this shell of a company. So yeah, real problematic there. Yeah, I don't, the whole thing just seems so weird and sloppy and like the, the, the more that gets revealed, the sketchier everything is. I have no idea what's going to happen next week after, you know, we hear from the prime minister, actually maybe further down. Uh, so the prime minister has agreed to go before I think the finance committee on this, which is 
somewhat unusual. Uh, no date set, but who knows what fun stuff will be revealed between now and then. We was also telling CBC this week that the idea that students should be paid $10 an hour came from the government because we might have even been uh, nervous about the idea of paying people less than minimum wage. At very least, CBC was poking around because some charities had told CBC that they were thinking of adjusting, I think is the word that was used, the number of hours so that students would be paid at least $15 an hour by saying, oh, you volunteered for four, but we'll consider it six for the purpose of the grant so that you get 15 an hour. And they put this to we and we said, the government of Canada determined the compensation per hour of service for the grant. And we was just contracted to administer the grant according to that decision. So that's not good on several levels. One is why was the federal government doing that? Uh, first of all, it's also a clear case that we, you know, trying to do as much as they can to distance themselves. And it also seems a little sketchy that a bunch of charities were saying, yeah, we're more or less going to fake our uh, submissions to the administrators of this program. Like, I, I get why they wanted to do it, but it's still kind of sketchy. Well, and it also feels like we is trying to throw the government a bit under the bus because we have in here in another story about lobbying that we did bring this proposal forward. I don't know if they put the number on the hours, but it's not clear who came up with the hour but or the dollarly rate, but clearly the government was the one to sign that as a final uh, approval. Nevertheless, Rachel Wernick testifying before the committee uh, denies that it was an hourly rate. Uh, she said, I need to clarify that this was a lump sum financial award, like a bursary at the end of the summer. It was not an hourly wage and that was the nature of the grant. Uh, she called it a reward that's like air miles, where you have to reach a certain level before you get the reward. So it was an air miles type program. I feel bad for bureaucrats who have to uh, come before parliamentary committees and be stuck in the like full limelight, the full you know press scrutiny. You know, that's not their job, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's why you have po a political level that exists between parliament and the public service, i.e. The, the executive and their staff, um, you know, the ministers and the minister's political staff. And like the way it's supposed, like the, the norm is that if anyone gets thrown under the bus, it's the political staff, not the civil servants who are just trying to do their job to the best of their abilities. But in this situation, you've had the, uh, the government, the Trudeau and many of the political side trying to say, look, this was a recommendation from the bureaucracy they said we should go with we. Uh, they set up the program, and you do want a bureaucracy, a strong bureaucracy that can establish a competent program. But ultimately, the final decision rests with the people who are elected. I mean, if you want a strong bureaucracy that can manage a program, you maybe give the program to the bureaucracy and not outsource it. I don't know, but it was the bureaucracy's idea to outsource it, which I thought never really made a lot of sense to me. Like. The incentives of the bureaucracy are to absorb all of these things within the bureaucracy. Well, over at the National Post, they have a story about how we is not a registered lobbyist, despite the fact they sent two, quote unquote, unsolicited proposals, according to bureaucrats testifying before the committees, to the federal government in April, one on April 9th about creating a social entrepreneurship grant, and then one a couple weeks later on April 22nd which is what became the CSSG, the Canada Student uh, Service Grant. The Conservatives are again asking the Federal Commissioner of Lobbying this time for an investigation over whether we should have registered as a lobbyist. I've looked into this. It does get a bit confusing, but the key thing is if you have one employee in your organization who spends at least 20% of their time preparing for or actively lobbying government for uh, federal funds is a big thing. But just what if you have 20 employees each spending 1% of their time? Oh, man, it gets confusing. <laughs> the, <laughs> the key thing is Francesco Trebi, a professor of economics at UBC who specializes in lobbying. He's quoted in this story saying it would be very un, it'd be very surprising if they didn't have someone spending a significant amount of time to pull together two uh, significant reports in under a month on this. So they most likely had the equivalent of a lobbyist, either in-house or contracted out. 
because it's not a over the year. I believe it's by the month situation. And so the fact they're not registered suggests maybe they missed something. Now, we charity and their lawyers say that they checked all the boxes and they welcome any investigation to clear their name. But I think the key thing in here is less about whether they should be or shouldn't be lobbying. But the fact that they clearly did send in the proposal that formed this grant. Yeah, and that's been pretty clear now, which also seems a little at odds with the civil service saying, well, we need to, we have this really important program, but we need to outsource it. It's not clear that you can have both the story that came from within the government and without. But also, you have a situation where, okay, maybe someone spent 19% of their time over the month preparing this, and it's not technically a breach or anything, but you know, maybe we should have a case where there's multiple thresholds, one's 20%. And, you know, maybe if you're asking for over half a billion dollars, that should also require registering with the lobby as a lobbyist for regardless of what percentage of overall time that is. At some point that the dollar figure becomes large enough that doesn't really matter how much of your time you're spending on it just because the rewards are so big that it's probably worth having a registry and knowing who's doing what with that. Yeah, BC's is a lot more open or a lot more stringent than this. And that's thanks to changes brought in by David Eby and the BC NDP. Basically, everyone who communicates and is paid to communicate with BC government officials, whether that's MP, MLAs, or even just like BC Hydro exec, anyone who's appointed by the government, as far as I can tell, uh, you have to register. There's like a very narrow exclusion for some charities, but even there, most charities need to register when they're communicating. And then once you've registered, you need to report basically every communication you do within a month or within any given month. So there's clear requirements, clear things you have to do there. And honestly, this gets back to like the key issue most people are pointing out with we is that there's a lack of transparency in here and like registering as a lobbyist when you're submitting this is something you can do if you're under that threshold voluntarily and maybe when you're asking for a billion dollars or whatever price tag was in that original thing registering would have just been the right and transparent thing to do but we'll have more to learn i guess about all this we controversy as you mentioned trudeau will be there at the Finance Committee. The Ethics Committee has also voted to call him as a witness. Uh, Katie Telford, his advisor, will be before the Finance Committee as well. So this is going to keep dragging on. And we're going to keep getting a trickle of news stories because apparently these committees are juicy. Oh, yeah, the Finance Minister admitting he forgot to report that he got a free trip somewhere. Yeah, it gets pretty juicy. Moving into our quick takes... There's a new poll out from Ecos Politics on how British Columbia's political parties are doing, and the NDP have a 17-point lead over the BC Liberals. The NDP is sitting at 46%, uh, the Liberals at 29%, the Greens are at 13 and just other parties are listed at 12 So this is interesting, as this poll didn't ask or didn't include BC Conservative Party, which often, in my mind, sits as a placeholder for people on the right of the political spectrum who maybe confuse it with the federal conservatives or who maybe want to drag the liberals slightly to the right. The fact they weren't listed and people still just picked other at a significant level is at very least bad news for the BC liberals. Yeah, although it's not unusual for people to kind of park their votes outside of a major party during the you know inter-election period and come back home, so to speak, uh, once things get underway in the campaign. You, you see that all the time with the, you know, the 10% that the BC conservatives pretty fairly consistently get in polls. And, you know, at election time, it's 2%. So honestly, it, it doesn't surprise me too much on that. It, nor does really the, the large gap, maybe the 17 is a little higher than I would have thought, but uh, you, you have the, we're in a crisis, we're going to rally around the flag, and unlike what's happened federally, like we were just talking about, or in the States, there hasn't really been something to jolt BC out of that. You know, there's 
BC's handled things fairly well. There's been no like big political story that's come up and kind of reinserted politics back into things. This to me says that we're still in the crisis. Let's all rally around the leader phase of things. And, you know, if it holds for another six months, then it might be particularly noteworthy. But, you know, right now this, this looks like COVID polling to me, not, you know, overall impressions of the party polling. I mean, at some point it does kind of become longer term if the NDP and John Horgan are seen as more competent because of this. Like if I think there's a widespread agreement that BC has handled this well because of the approach the NDP has taken. Now people have settled disagreements over the financial packages being rolled out, but even those aren't attracting a significant anger yet. I think there's still apprehension about what's to come. The other thing in this poll is that the Greens aren't doing great. 13 is down a few points, and there's a large undecided 19% of respondents overall, uh, which is outside those numbers. I only gave the uh, decided numbers at the top. 19% of respondents were undecided, so that's still a lot of room for everything to shift around. But yeah, if you're John Horgan in the NDP, you're riding high. If you're everyone else, time to start reviewing your strategies, I guess. Well, the one bit of politics that has managed to make its way back into things is the ad story we were talking about a couple of weeks back. Uh, it turns out I was a little wrong. It hasn't entirely gone away as the Vancouver Pride Society has decided to ban the BC Liberals after they didn't take disciplinary action against Lori Thronas over his refusal to not advertise in that publication. The light, I think it was. This is interesting. So Spencer Chandra Herbert of the NDP released a letter, I think it was last week, and we didn't talk about it um, because I wasn't sure if it was going to pick up outside the kind of partisan circles where he and the NDP basically came out and said, Laurie Thronis needs to be kicked from the BC Liberals. He should at least lose his childcare role, his critic, his role as critic for childcare, if he's going to be making these comments and supporting things that promote conversion therapy and other things that are extremely harmful to children. Vancouver Pride came out the next day and basically reiter- uh, echoed that call and said, you know, if you're not going to stand up as a party for the queer community, then don't pretend you can join us in our virtual celebrations this year. Now, I think Pride has an interesting history with pressuring the BC Liberals in this way. It was Vancouver Pride a few years ago that instituted, I think they call it the Trans Equality Now Pledge, where if you wanted to participate in the Pride Parade as an organization, you had to commit that you supported adding gender identity and gender expression to the Human Rights Code. And at the time, the BC Liberals weren't clear on it. Some supported it, but some didn't, like Laurie Thronis. And eventually, Christy Clark, after I think the Liberals were kicked out of one Pride, came around. There was one year they didn't march. Yeah. And I think it was because of that. And the next year, the BC Liberals put forward an amendment to the Human Rights Code to add that. And, you know, it shows they have the uh, clout to affect some change. Now, I don't know if Wilkinson is going to, you know, have the or make the decision to act on Laurie Thronis. Thronis has a constituency and represents a certain constituency of the BC Liberal big tent, which is the social conservatives. And does he need them to win? Probably because he can't have that wing split off and ride an upsurgent BC conservative. But at the same time, well, part of it too, is that Wilkinson's in a pretty weak state. Like we were just talking about polling and he hasn't been doing particularly well on that for a while. He was the leader only after the final round of ballots and all other contenders had dropped. He got a, then he came in fourth, maybe even fifth on the first ballot, basically slowly climbed his way up as other people were knocked off on it. And like, overall, like, he, he just isn't in that strong position. Like A lot of the more federally liberally aligned liberals I know are kind of annoyed that the conservative side of the party ends up dominating things so much when they view that there isn't quite that big a difference, or that their faction should have at least a little more say and that shouldn't be entirely pandering to them to 
prevent the breakaway. So it's a tough part of the factional politics. Every party has the that with different stuff. So just my read on it is that there Wilkinson probably isn't going to do anything on this just because I don't think he's in a strong enough position to really do much on it. No, I don't disagree with any of that analysis. Perhaps, you know, if this can calm down or quiet down for a couple weeks in the fall or even next spring, there'll be a quiet shuffle of the critic portfolios and Thronus will be moved into something less connected to his social conservative views. Maybe he'll get like mines or something or forestry. Ooh, my, mines might be... Thronus is the one who wants to carve uh, giant statues into the mountains, right? So Yes, yes he is. Yeah, my, mines might be good for him. It, it can, that's one of his other more centered ideas that's perhaps a little less harmful and, and might be one that draws less controversy and more just bemused amusement from people until he tells us he wants to have like jesus on the on the mountain or something i don't think there's a pivot from thronus to the next story but john horgan after some unfortunate choices of words at a press conference early in the week where he characterized drug use as a choice and he was called out by andrew wilkinson quite effectively on that uh, and he apologized almost immediately the next day John Horgan has actually written to the Prime Minister formally asking for an end to criminalization of drug possession. So last week he had announced that he is in favor of decriminalizing drugs, and now he's not just saying the words, but actually putting it to the federal government to come up with a plan to end criminalization of personal possession, which would, in his view, go a long way to end the stigma. And that would be a good thing, in my view. No no disagreement there. Decriminalization makes a lot of sense. Tough to see it happening with the federal government in a minority position now. Trudeau could probably get the Liberals, maybe the Bloc. I don't know what their internal politics are on this. I think they were possibly a bit, some Quebecers were a bit more skeptical of cannabis legalization, uh, but the Greens would be on side. The Conservatives would, you know, scream bloody murder though. And so. I don't know. This is also this does follow though. Trude, uh, Horgan successfully getting the paid national sick leave policy in, so he's shown some recent history of being able to move issues. Maybe not exactly like this, but bigger national issues. It was weird seeing Doug Ford uh, praise John Horgan this last week on that sick leave policy. So, you know, I'm willing to give him a bit of benefit of doubt on this because I've criticized Horgan for not following Dr. Henry's call from last year of using the police act and the powers within the province to stop the direct police to stop arresting people for using drugs. And that could still be a nice interim measure. But, you know, if he can get buy-in across the country to move this issue, we could see some big changes. I mean, this follows the National Association of Police Chiefs that we talked about last week supporting decriminalization. So maybe uh, changes in the air. Yeah, perhaps. It it does make it hard for the conservatives, not that they won't try anyway, but because they always turn everything up to 11. Seriously a problem with them because they they can't modulate anything enough that people know when something's serious, like say a major scandal involving... Uh, financial improprieties and conflicts of interest because every little thing gets blown up to its maximum impact as possible. Yeah, I think they called for three people to resign this week only. So so they'll try it, but it's harder to make that credible when all the police chiefs are saying, yeah, we actually kind of wanted to have this decriminalized too. Well, from, I guess, policy innovation at the federal level to Innovation here in BC, we have a new innovation commissioner. Jerry Sinclair has been named after the outgoing commissioner had finished his term. Uh, so she'll be replacing Alan Winter. Know, the, the innovation commissioner is one of those things that like, I get why governments want it, but I have trouble seeing how your how innovation is really going to be spurred by a government commissioner. Very few things fail to invoke the innovative spirit the way, quite the way government commissioner does, just as a concept. 
I think this was a key part of the BC Greens uh, push in the confidence and supply agreement. And we went through, I think, Alan Winter's report, and there was some interesting stuff in there, but it was fairly buzzword heavy. So my eyes definitely glazed over quite a bit. To be fair, like 90% of all discussions around innovation are just buzzwords. Oh, no, yeah, that was not a slight against uh, Dr. Winter, but just, yeah, innovation commissioners in general. Yeah, I'm looking forward to innovation in the innovation discussion so that it's no longer so buzzword heavy and we can innovate away from that. Uh, Metivation. Uh, Jerry Sinclair comes to the role as a former managing director at Kensington Capital. She's worked for Microsoft in Van City. She was executive director of the digital media program at Center for Digital Media. So she's got a mix of experience in public, nonprofit, media, uh, business settings. She seems like a good choice for the job, at least. She's got a unique challenge here in that she has to kind of figure out how to promote innovation coming out of a recession and pandemic. Now there's a bit of opportunity there, given the government is going to be throwing money around very soon. So maybe some innovative ideas can come forward and uh, look at the future. Well, there has been some innovation as a result of the pandemic. Now, I don't think any of it came at the suggestion of an innovation commissioner. And ah, that, that's, I guess, part of my problem here is like, yeah, it's good for the both the private sector and the public sector to innovate. But just having a commissioner doesn't do much. Like, You actually need some you know, significant political will within those organizations to you know, do whatever, you know, restructuring or new policy or procedures or all of that stuff, like actually get a large government body to adopt those. You know, a report from a commissioner isn't actually going to result in much of that happening. In, indeed, for sure. Switching gears a little, the federal government is going to be forced to innovate potentially a bit with our partnership with the United States as the Federal Court of Canada has ruled that our safe third country agreement with the United States violates the Section 7, the life, liberty, and security of the person rights of people who might be sent back to the U.S. where they would face detention and deportation. A fairly landmark ruling. It could still be appealed by the federal government and the judge has also given the federal government six months to amend the agreement in some way to protect Canadians' rights. Notably, within six months, there might be a new administration, though. Yeah, it's looking like that more and more these days. I'm not getting optimistic. You can't let me get optimistic. Even if there is a change in administration, though, I think there will still be still need to be some response to this ruling because you know, even a democratic administration doesn't have a spotless record on human rights issues. Even a Canadian government doesn't have a spotless record on human rights issues. So I think finding some extra safeguards to make sure that, well, we can still uphold the spirit of the agreement, if there are individual circumstances to suggest that a person may face um, unjust treatment on their return to the U.S., that they can claim asylum here rather than in the U.S. where they perhaps first landed. Yeah, it's been clear for, what, the past three and a half years now that the U.S. is and this administration is not very uh, hospitable to asylum claimants or really, or anyone who's immigrant from anywhere but Norway, pretty much. So it's, I suppose it was only a matter of time before trying to the courts got to the same point yeah we'll just have to see if this gets appealed and you know the, the government i typically d- appeals those just at, as a matter of policy so it probably will be but with everything going on in the states i, I think it's more likely than not that it's not going to be overturned or not will be upheld well we'll just have to see well moving from unsafe countries to unsafe workplaces The governor general has been accused of creating a toxic climate of harassment and verbal abuse at Rideau Hall. So this comes from the CBC, who has multiple sources that describe a rather unpleasant working environment that has the governor general and her chief of staff 
being quite abusive to a bunch of the employees uh, at Rito Hall. Very few specifics are given as to the abuse just to protect the privacy uh, and anonymity of the journalist sources, which is fair enough. Uh, It does point to a number of times people were left crying either in their vehicles after work or in hallways or otherwise seeing outbursts from uh, alleged outbursts from the governor general. Uh, It seems like a major focus is over a perfectionist streak and this obsession over the quality of work. And if people don't live up to uh, Payette's standards, she bursts outbursts at them, allegedly. This is also highlighted by the fact just during the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been four members of her communications team who have quit and a fifth one is leaving this week and another two have taken leaves of absence, which that's either, I don't know how big her comms team is, but so it's either one role turning over a lot or there's like the whole thing with this story is like, what does the governor general even do? And it shouldn't matter. So like the stakes should not be high in this job. Don't fuck up is the key thing. Yeah. I mean, as long as you don't cause a diplomatic incident when you're receiving, you know, foreign dignitaries or something, or I guess create a constitutional crisis as governor generals have occasionally done. <laughs> Other than that. Yeah shouldn't be that challenging a job one of the things that came up at the end that's a little bit lighter but still i think kind of a hint at where things went is that i guess at the beginning of her mandate some of the sources cbc had said payette would put staff on the spot by quizzing them about outer space she asked them to name all the planets or to state the distance between the sun and the moon which is like quirky funny for an astronaut but if it goes beyond just like hey, can you name all the planets to name all the planets or you're going to lose your job? You know, there's lines that get crossed. And if she's yelling at people, I mean, the Rito Hall denies these allegations and says it's unfortunate that the story is going out. But I kind of trust CBC at this point, if you're having, if you have a dozen sources and evidence of high turnover, that something is not well there. Yeah, because like, aren't astronauts supposed to be pretty thoroughly screened for bad workplace conduct and stuff? The teamwork needed to be a successful astronaut is you know, extremely high. And doesn't NASA and presumably CSA go to the effort of making sure that you know people aren't going to cause workplace problems, you know, in outer space? And presumably those same things would apply on the ground in a ceremonial job too. I think that's correct. The one caveat would be that I think there's a very different type of person who you work with in NASA or the Canadian Space Agency than that you would work in work with in a ceremonial position. It's not to say they're lesser or anything, but just the focus. Like in NASA, you're working with the type of people you and I know, Scott, right? Engineers and scientists who are all a bit... Uh, detail-oriented, perhaps, in very specific ways. And so maybe that shift has just not been as successful or something, and there's just a clash of personalities. But things need to be probably a bit more transparent. Things need to be cleaned up. I mean, there's been numerous allegations of irregularities in the Governor General's office, including like just her unwillingness to there was that weird story about how at one point she was unwilling to like, or reluctant to come and sign bills. Like literally the one thing she has to do in her role to pass them into law. Well, she has to like appoint a bunch of people at the direction of the prime minister. And just like found it inconvenient to that, do that at one point. So a lot of weird sources come out or a lot of weird stories have come out about her tenure as governor general. Yeah. Hopefully things turn around and I feel really bad for everyone who had those experiences in that job having a shitty boss really sucks yeah like pretty much i think the queen's the only one that could fire her right it's not the case that you know this is just you know a minister or someone who trudeau can just let go at the drop of a hat so yeah there might not be a way out of it in the short term there are problems as it seems there are i'm sure if 
Trudeau ex- not exerted some pressure, but had the right conversations, she could possibly be convinced to leave early. But you, you may be right that she doesn't have to. But hopefully this doesn't end in a constitutional crisis like that. And to close off on a lighter story, now independent MLA, but former uh, Green Par- BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver was in the news this week as Joe Perkins from Czech News was tweeting out that I guess Andrew Weaver has weighed into a bike lane project in Oak Bay. So so he's a Green Party, right? So like, th- presumably he would be in favor of a bike lane, right? Like that. You know, I know he's an independent now, but, you know, spent five years as the leader of the Green Party. Surely that must be the case. No, he's he's a Green Party MLA, so he's or was a Green Party MLA. So he's in favor of consultation and discussion with the residents of Oak Bay prior to the B.C. government giving money to this Richardson Street corridor bike lane. You know, people's people need to be heard. Democracy, Scott, democracy. Green Party people against like very obviously good for the environment stuff. I, I, I wish it was actually a surprising thing. Uh, my, my facetiousness at the top is not actually how things work because, yeah, the, the Green Party has a tendency to, I think, elevate or revere participatory democracy so much that they end up in a position where often they're opposing or at least very hesitant to support like obviously good things for the environment. I, you see it all the time at the local level here in Vancouver, but you know, it clearly happens at other levels too. My favorite angle on this is to th- think about how the Greens are commonly nicknamed Tories with bikes, especially the Andrew Weaver type Greens. But in this case, I th- was it you came up in our Slack with Tories with Teslas? Uh, so I think I might've originally heard that from, uh, friend of the show Patrick but uh, it's definitely an idea that's been out for a while now and I, I do like it a little better because it does have the uh, nice alliteration going for it in any case Andrew Weaver is no longer green and he's free to complain about bike lane projects like a typical Oak Bay resident would I guess yeah uh, I mean, a few people I snarkily posted about this on Twitter and a few people tried to do the, well, he's not a green anymore, but like the guy ran the party for, for five years. Like he's a green. And the fact that he's sitting independent during the leadership race and before he leaves politics doesn't really change that. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.